If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me now to 1 Peter chapter 2. We will read verses 13 through 17 before turning back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 to read verses 8 and 9. Stand with me now as we read God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, starting in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 to read just verses 8 and 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, use the scriptures this morning for the sake of your lambs, bought by the blood of your son, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. The two verses that we are covering today are pretty easy to translate from Hebrew into English, but they are notoriously difficult to interpret, right? Translating is about what was said. Interpreting is about what was meant, You'll see, I think, in just a few minutes as I unpack the various perspectives on these two verses that good and godly men have varying opinions about what Solomon is saying here. Indeed, uh, as I surveyed the various commentaries on Ecclesiastes in my office, there was almost a differing opinion for every commentary there was. There are even two different opinions about whether or not verses 8 and 9 go together at all. One opinion is that they represent two different thoughts that are not interacting with one another, while the second, more predominant opinion is that they are two sides of one coin. They are one complete kind of proverb, one complete thought. In either case, it is very difficult to connect them with the previous verses or even the following verses. They kind of read like proverbial knowledge, a brief side quest for Solomon, if you will, before moving on to the next matter. And I tend to lean towards the idea that they are connected logically, but good, brilliant, and godly men can disagree on this matter. These are the kinds of verses that provide pastors with the opportunity to teach the doctrine of perspicuity, which is a very difficult word to pronounce correctly that means clarity, ironically. It's the doctrine captured in the seventh paragraph of Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1. I'm going to read the, the modern updated version in English by Chad Van Dixhorn. If you don't have his book, Confessing the Faith, I highly recommend it. Uh, if, if for no other reason other than he takes the, uh, the 17th century English and he updates it for you and makes it a little bit more readable. So this is what the divines said, as updated by Dr. Van Dixhorn. Not all things in Scripture are equally plain in themselves or equally clear to all. 
Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly stated and explained in one place or another in Scripture that not only the educated but also the uneducated may gain a sufficient understanding of them by a proper use of the ordinary means. To even simplify that further, Dr. Burke Parsons of Reformation Bible College said this, Not everything in Scripture is easy to understand. But what we must understand in order to be saved is clear. That is the doctrine of perspicuity in the simplest terms possible. And it needs to be simply stated that the verses that we're covering today do not pertain to salvation. These are not matters essential and indispensable to the gospel. So so good people can disagree about what these two verses are saying and yet still find themselves celebrating together in heaven one day. And regardless of the precise meaning of Solomon here, the overall implication is the same. We live in a sinful, fallen world. Therefore, the men who are supposed to ensure order and justice are often part of the problem. God means for the civil servant to serve society in a righteous, upright manner. But that is sadly not always the case. It is for this very reason that we need to keep in mind what the preacher king says at the very end of the book that God sees everything that is done under the sun, and he will judge it all. So while there might be corruption, there might be sin amongst the civil magistrates, and while nobody this side of eternity might see it or do anything about it, God sees it, and he will ultimately do something about it. So with that comfort in mind, fret not, and let's dive into these two verses one at a time, and we'll do our level best to make sense of them. Notice first in verse 8 the word province. Did you catch that? Not very many commentators uh, focused on that word. They seem to blow past it and talk more about how difficult it is to translate this from Hebrew into English. But Dr. Max Rogland uh, pointed out that what's being dealt with in verse 8 is more regional and local government. That's what's being dealt with here. The hierarchy of not a federal or national government, but more a regional and provincial government. And secondly, let me just briefly remark here that the chain of officials listed in verse 8 is not exhaustive. You'll, you'll notice that what he says is, look, there's, a, there's corruption, the, the, the poor are being oppressed, and people are not getting justice. There's a high official, and then there's a higher guy over him, and then there's plural, goes from singular, singular to plural. There's a whole lot of people above them. That's not exhaustive. That's not meant to be taken as a defense of, or a prescriptive statement of the necessity of a three-tiered government, right? He's just kind of giving you He's just kind of giving you a broad example. Look, on and on this goes, is what he's saying. There's this guy, this guy, and it just keeps on going. So what are the differing opinions of what's happening here in verse 8? Well, the first view is what I would call the red tape view. Right? I think it was Tremper Longman who used that uh, label, the red tape view. And basically, this is the view that justice isn't happening because of the complexity of bureaucracy. Some of you have probably experienced this in your own life before. Another label for this view is self-absorbed bureaucracy, and there's two sub-views here. The first sub-view focuses on corruption. Uh, This view is basically saying, look, red tape creates the smoke and mirrors necessary for people to do sketchy, sinful things. You've probably all seen a movie or a show in which somebody forges a document or they they use legitimate documents as kind of a shield and protection to do something evil. So it's lawful, it's legal, but it's immoral, right? There's a difference. People bury uh, uh, people underneath them in endless paperwork to hide their misdeeds in the fine print and the final revision on Christmas Eve or something like that. So somebody misses it in the review. 
The second subview focuses on incompetence. Look, humans are fallen and therefore inefficient, which makes justice improbable with all this red tape. Look, we're navigating through this spider web of paperwork here. How could we possibly give someone justice? Right? It's the incompetence view. And then there's the second big view, which is the cronyism view. What's being described here under this perspective is that all of these guys are looking out for each other. If you would look at verse 8, and you'll see there that a high official is watched. They would interpret that word watched, meaning they're looking out for each other. Right? They're all in it together. It's a good old boys network. That's what's being described in verse 8. It's basically organized crime, if you think about it. Right? These are the good fellas that are looking out for each other. One commentator even mentioned how an, in, an infamous politician from his state, the, uh, in the state of Pennsylvania, I believe, many, many years ago before my lifetime, apparently this politician boldly stated out loud that he was blowing taxpayer money and living high on the hog with his friends in politics. Right? He said the quiet part out loud, as they would say. So this is the cronyism view. And then there's the multi-level tyranny view. I don't know if anybody else uses that label. That's just what I came up with. But uh, what's described by one commentator is that, look, each magistrate is being oppressed by the one above him. You've heard of trickle-down economics? Well, this is trickle-down tyranny, right? These people up here are oppressing this guy. In order for him to make a living, he has to oppress this guy, who then has to oppress the people and so on and so forth, right? And then there's the fourth view, the view that I'll just call the passing the buck view. Right, so what's being said here is that the lower level guys are just doing their jobs. Right? This is the refrain of every spineless man in the history of the world serving under tyrants. I'm just doing my job. Look, it's not my fault. I didn't want to do this. I, it's just, these are the orders that I got. So their view is that it's not this high official or the higher above him. It's all of these guys above him. Whoever the top big cheese is in this endless list of bureaucrats... They're the ones setting the agenda, and we're just all following orders. It's not my fault. Right? And that's why people are robbed of justice. That's why people are oppressed. So there's all these different views. Whatever the case might be, the poor who have the least resources to seek out justice, they're being oppressed. What's being done by the civil officials is both a violation of civil justice and of God's divine law, his righteousness. Right? These civil servants, they're not living rightly in the civil or in the spiritual sense. Now, what do all these views have in common? They all have a good Reformed doctrine of man, a good Augustinian, Calvinistic, Westminsterian view of mankind and our sin. The Reformed doctrine of man is that by the sin of Adam, all of mankind fell with him. We fell from original righteousness and we fell from communion with God. Furthermore, because of Adam's original sin that's passed on to us, we are dead in sin. We are holy and completely defiled. Even our cognitive faculties and moral capability are corrupted. Right? So even in our thinking, we're messed up. Even if we think, okay, this will work out. This is how we best organize things. This is how we best give people ju uh, justice. This is how we can work this out. Sometimes it doesn't go that way. So sometimes even in our, with our best intentions... Things come out sideways. The corrupted nature of Adam is conveyed to us because we descend from him by ordinary generation. And because of that original corruption that we bear, we are utterly disinclined, disabled, and antagonistic to all that is good by the standards of God. Because of our corrupt nature that we receive from our forefather Adam, we are naturally inclined to what is evil. 
Therefore, it shouldn't shock us that these people that share that sin nature, when they have power and authority, that things don't go well. We shouldn't be surprised. That's what Solomon is telling us here. But even after we're born again, the corruption of our nature remains. And by that corrupted nature and all the sins that flow out of it, we are subject to death and all kinds of temporal miseries, like the poor being oppressed and people being robbed or extorted of justice. This is the condition of man. Ephesians 2 tells us that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. David says in Psalm 51 that we are sinful from the very moment that we are conceived in our mother's wombs. Jeremiah 17.9 says that our hearts are desperately sick. One commentator described that as like your hearts have like a spiritual terminal cancer. It is completely hopeless. John 8.44 implies that mankind either has God as their heavenly father or Satan, the father of lies. Ezekiel 36.26 describes a heart of stone, a spiritually dead, hardened, and arrested heart that does not work. Multiple verses throughout the scriptures describe our spiritual sight as being blinded apart from Christ. Romans 3 describes mankind as having throats that are open graves, feet that are swift not to righteousness but to shed blood, and we have no fear of God in our eyes. The reformed man, the reformed woman knows what man truly is. Therefore, we are cautious to give too much power and authority to our fellow man, and the reformed man and woman are not shocked when we find corruption in civil government or anywhere else. How should it work? We see what Solomon is describing in verse 8, and this seems to be true throughout the human experience across the ages, but how should the whole hierarchy of civil officials operate regarding oppression and a lack of justice? Well, the answer is the historic doctrine known as the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, which is defined this way. When the superior or higher civil authority makes unjust or immoral laws or decrees, the lesser or lower ranking civil authority has both a right and duty to refuse obedience to that superior authority. If necessary, the lesser authorities even have the right and obligation to actively resist the superior authority. One pastor and author said this about the doctrine. He said, historically, this doctrine was practiced before the time of Christ and Christianity, but it was Christian men who formalized and embedded it into their political institutions throughout Western civilization. Indeed, you'll see this doctrine being written about by men like John Calvin and John Knox. Uh, Lutheran ministers even embedded this doctrine into a confession of faith known as the Magdeburg Confession. And that doctrine from that confession was adopted by the disciple of John Calvin, who was known as Theodore Beza, who called the example of the men at Magdeburg outstanding for what they had written. The great Presbyterian John Knox, when writing to Scottish nobles in 1558 AD, he cited over 70 passages of scripture from the Bible in his articulation of this doctrine. He insisted that the lesser magistrates in Scotland had a responsibility to shield their citizens from unjust laws and decrees. So much for that radical two-kingdom theology in which the church doesn't speak to the civil matters of the world. This doctrine is grounded in the Christian concept, another doctrine known as interposition, which is the act of someone stepping into a gap on behalf of someone else. To interpose is to willingly place yourself in harm's way by standing between an oppressor and the one they intend to harm. We see this doctrine illustrated for us in the pages of the Old Testament on more than one occasion. Think of the midwives who were commanded by Pharaoh to help kill these Hebrew children, and they simply declined. They didn't do it. They didn't follow orders. 
Think about the men of Israel. You've heard me mention this more than once in our sermon series on Ecclesiastes. The men of Israel interposed on behalf of Jonathan when a rash decree from Saul threatened Jonathan's life. We even see our Lord doing this. In John chapter 8, there's a woman caught in adultery. She's dragged out into public and she's about to be stoned. And he steps between her and certain death. In the same way, civil servants are to interpose for their own subjects. Daniel did this. Uh, He was Jewish, of course, living in exile, but he was a disciple of Yahweh, a man who truly feared the one God of Israel. And when he refused to comply with King Darius' order to not pray to God for a month, he didn't act as some rogue individual. He acted as a civil servant. And we were reading this account in one of our kids' children's books that I just don't quite like, uh, because one of the things that they get wrong is they say that he went privately, closed all of his doors and windows, and prayed. That's the exact opposite of what he did. He did it very openly. He opened his windows. He defied this tyrannical, ungodly order in the open as a civil magistrate. We often forget that part. He was one of three governors. He was one of three right-hand men of the king. He's a very high-ranking magistrate, but he's a lesser magistrate nonetheless. You have to keep that in mind as you remember the story of Daniel defying the orders of Darius, and he accepted the consequences. He's thrown into the lion's den, believing that God, I think, would save him. Now, uh, under Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, remember, if you remember, had appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as civil servants to look over the affairs of the province of, of Babylon. They were appointed lesser magistrates under Daniel. They were like lieutenant governors. That's the position that they held as they defied the king Nebuchadnezzar when he demanded that they bow down to the golden image. They weren't just private citizens. They weren't just slaves or bondservants in in exile. They were civil servants. In Jeremiah 38, the prophet Jeremiah is spared by the actions of a lesser magistrate. Earlier in the book, in Jeremiah 26, the officials and some elders of Judah come come to his aid by interposing for him when false prophets and false priests wanted to kill him. He is the beneficiary of the doctrine of the lesser magistrate in action on more than one occasion. Here's one more example. In 2 Kings chapter 11, Jehoiada the priest instructs the captains of the royal guard to restore order in direct rebellion against the tyrant. He even helps arm these civil magistrates to do their job. And these lesser magistrates, in rebellion against the tyrant, they restore order to the land. See, what's being described in verse 8 here in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes is lesser magistrates, either directly with malice or indirectly through apathy or a lack of a spine. They're participating in the oppression of the poor and the robbery of proper justice. But as John Knox said in his appellation to the nobles of Scotland, the Scottish people under the care of these nobles, they were to be defended from all oppression and tyranny. It was their duty. It was their obligation. John Knox understood that civil servants, even those on the lowest level, are to function as a protection, as a shield from injustice. They have a duty to interpose for their people. What can we take away from this? We can take away several things. The first is, I've already stated it, we should not be surprised. We should not be shocked by human corruption in government. Being concerned is fine. Calling corruption evil That's what it is. It's okay to label it evil, but don't be amazed. Humans are deeply corrupt, including us. Secondly, I think we must guard against cynicism or a total dismissal of human order and government. Government is God's idea. Tyranny is man's idea. Human government has boundaries because God established the office of the civil magistrate. Early on in the book of Genesis, 
humanity, except for Noah's family, has been wiped off the face of the earth. All that really ruled the earth before the flood was complete and total tyranny. And God reestablishes order through Noah. He has a covenant with Noah. He even makes Noah kind of the first civil servant in this creation 2.0. Third, we must pray for governing officials. This is what Paul commands Timothy and us in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We should pray for all of them. Four, we should remember that God is watching our civil servants, but he's also watching us. God sees how we speak and treat our civil servants, how we speak to them and about them, how we treat them. Fifth, if we're Christians who hold any position in the civil government, we are to stand in between tyranny and the people. Uh, There's a great example of this up in, uh, I think it was either Ohio or Indiana. It was in Amish country. And if you know what the Amish believe, they're, they're very much kind of separate from the world. They're very, they're very much pacif- uh, pacifists. And there was this one particular Amish dairy farmer, I think it was either the DEA or uh, the FDA, uh, you know, armed, you know, alphabet soup federal agents kept coming onto his property and stealing his stuff, taking, confiscating it because it wasn't pasteurized or, sorry, you can't have that yogurt or that milk because it doesn't meet these federal standards. And he's, he's Amish, so he just kept letting it happen. And finally, he just politely went to the sheriff and informed the sheriff, this is what's happening. Is this, can, are they allowed to do this? And the sheriff said, not in my county. And, and he basically told these federal agents, the next time you come into my county without a warrant, you're under arrest. And he actually did end up arresting federal agents for coming onto his property without a warrant. Because he's, that, that's his job, is to protect the people from federal tyranny. He understood his job as a lesser magistrate. Number six, we should praise God that we live as subjects under authorities that actually have a duty to protect us from oppression. Isn't it great that we live in society? A society, not just because it's America, but everybody in the world has a right to have civil servants that obey God and are accountable to him. Every magistrate everywhere, even beyond the Western world, will one day answer to God. And they won't be able to plead ignorance and say, we didn't know that this is our job to not oppress the people. We didn't know it was our job to to take our boots off of their necks. We should praise God that we are subject to authorities and they will be held accountable. Now, here's the matter of verse 9. What do we make of this verse? The first view is that uh, this verse is saying that, that a king or a civil magistrate who is concerned about the economy running smoothly, he is a blessing overall to the economy. And there's kind of three different subviews of this. The, the first subview is that verse 9 is actually the answer to the problem created in verse 8. right? What verse eight, 9 is saying is, look, a godly king who has his head on his shoulders, who cares about the cultivation of fields, he's going to sort out these corrupt provincial magistrates. Kind of the second subview is that what's being described here when it says that there's a king that's for the cultivating of fields, that means he has his eyes on it, he cares about it, he's going to protect from foreign invaders, and he's going to adjudicate domestic crimes that are committed against farmers as they seek to do their jobs. And then the third kind of subview here is that the king restores the proper use of the fields. I call this the Joel Salatin view. If you know about the, he's America's most famous farmer. In the 1970s, he and his dad bought this property in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and it was just awful. It was, it was just terribly, uh, it was in terrible shape. It, it wasn't really usable. And so they basically healed the land, and now they, they farm it. 
right? So I call this the Joel Salatin view because what one commentator said is happening in verse 9 is that the king looks out at all of these fields that are not being cultivated. They're not, they're not, they, they once were being used for farming and for raising uh, animals, and now they're not. They've, they've been you know, left in neglect and disrepair. And so the king kind of gets things going again and kind of puts people in charge of, of getting the cultivation back on track. All three of those views are saying, yes, regional and provincial government uh, is corrupt. But all in all, having societal order and a king who is attentive to our economy flourishing, this is overall a benefit to the land. And then there's the second major view, which is that verse 9 is actually saying that the land is a blessing to the king. The cultivation of fields, the economy kind of booming, that is ultimately a blessing to the king. Now, here's what's difficult about these two views. They're both actually correct. Right? Having a civil servant, a, a chief executive officer in whatever form he takes, governor, mayor, king, who cares about protecting people as they're diligently and lawfully laboring, right, producing something of value in the economy, that's a blessing to the whole land. But it's also a blessing to the civil magistrates when people are productive, right? Romans uh, 13 tells us, and 1 Peter uh, tells us that we are to give honor to whom honor is due. Romans 13 says, look, if there's tribute or taxes that are actually owed to someone for what they're, the service they're providing, you should provide it, right? Someone who is in charge with defending the realm is going to starve if nobody has any goods or silver to pay him with, right? So they're both true. Cultivated crops bless the king. This view has the advantage of being universally true. There's never been a monarchy in the history of the world that's not been blessed when the fields are, are churning out good crops. Right? But what do both of these views have in common? Well, peace and order leading to economic productivity is a blessing. Westminster Larger Catechism 141 ends with these words. We are to endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. The author, student of society, economist, and capitalist George Gilder describes capitalism as an act of love. It's motivated by love, not by greed, as so many would say. He talks about how when we invest, when we work, when we build businesses and labor diligently, diligently there's a blessing that comes to us and comes to others. It's not out of greed. It's out of a love for our family, a love for our fellow man that we labor. He asserts that society is built and stabilized when men are working to feed the people under their care. I think the way he puts it is civilization is built by men with mouths to feed. It's important to understand that wealth is not a zero-sum game. We do not have to victimize or impoverish other people to become wealthy, despite what so many professors in major universities today would have you believe. And as we work in fair and lawful vocations, people are blessed by the work that we do. I mean, I'm blessed by the work that some of our congregants do because we have this stand right here that's rock solid and I can move this microphone in towards me or away from me without it falling over. Right? So thank you, Summit Machine Works, for the work of your hands. A family, a tribe, society, nation, kingdom with men cultivating the soil of various industries is blessed when the hands of men are not idle. Do you know what happens when the hands of men who could be working are idle? Pallets of bricks are magically delivered downtown and all of a sudden they go flying through windows. When it comes to the king mentioned in verse 9, it is the duty of the king to preserve and further the wealth and outward estate of his citizens by defending them from physical harm 
and from fraud. Can a king prevent that? Can a governor or a mayor prevent that from happening at every term? No, of course not. Absolutely not. But they can act as a deterrent. I've driven recently, you've heard me mention this three or four weeks ago, when I drove through Atlanta, a certain part of Atlanta in September, it's clear that there was no deterrent from crime. When you stop prosecuting, when you stop uh, enforcing laws about damaging property and hurting people, the economy does not flourish. When you stop adjudicating civil and criminal matters against individuals and businesses, neighborhoods, societies, states suffer. This brings me to my next point. What is the proper relationship of the civil servant to the economy? In other words, in verse 9, what should the king be doing for the man who is cultivating his field? The short answer is this. Civil justice for those laboring lawfully. The king, the, the chief executive officer, the magistrate, is to adjudicate civil and criminal matters and disputes arising between men when those men cannot resolve the matters themselves. The role of the king in verse 9 is not picking which farmer wins and which farmer loses. I have an uncle who I dearly love. He farmed in Illinois for 27 years, and I finally got the courage to ask him if there was any sort of like federal you know, handout given to farmers. And he said, yes, there is. We all got the same check. He goes, I never understood it. I never understood why we couldn't just farm straight up and figure out who could do this job and who can't. Right? So every year they get, you know, they get a subsidy from the government. That's not the role of the magistrate. It's not giving handouts or bailouts. That's what neighbors and family in the church can choose to do, I suppose, for individuals in their, in their sphere of influence. I suppose the king could do that from his very own funds, but this is not what the royal treasury is ultimately for. It's not to manipulate economic outcomes. His power is not to be used to mess with currency or financial results. The civil servant has boundaries placed upon them. Did you catch it in 1 Peter 2 that we read earlier? Punish evil, reward what is good. Punish evil, reward what is good. My, how far we've come from that originally stated purpose of the civil magistrate. The invader, the thief, the pirate is bad. The arsonist burning the field that this man in verse 9 is trying to cultivate is bad. And they need to be dealt with appropriately and compensate the people that they have wronged. They owe a debt to their victims. And the king and those serving under him are to ensure that they pay what they owe to their neighbor. The reward for the man hard at work in the field is to be left alone and even praised for his good work. We often focus on the part of 1 Peter and Romans 13 that says, punish evil. But it says to commend or praise what is good. That's what leaders ought to do. Fathers, uh, mothers, when your children do good things, you should praise them for it. Elders, when congregants do good things, we should encourage them and commend them for it. You know, I, I've, I was, uh, when I was in the ninth grade, we were invited to the state capitol and we were commended as a high school football team for winning four state championships in a row. We were commended by the governor of the state of Florida. You know, it seems kind of, might seem kind of silly, but that's, that's actually kind of in the job description of civil servants, is to commend what is good after it's done. So the man working in his field is to be countenanced with faithfulness from the civil servant, to be rewarded by his neighbors as he sells his products and his goods to them. The king should punish evil when it befalls the marketplace in which the, sell, the farmer is just trying to sell his crops and trade with his neighbors. The Westminster Divines list several crimes that I think the civil servant ought to address and enforce based on these principles. From larger catechism 141, truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce is what one man owes to another. 
Secondly, rendering to everyone his due. And third, the restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof. This, these are the matters that the civil servant should oversee. The Westminster Larger Catechism 142 adds several more. Theft, robbery, and man-stealing. Fraudulent dealing, false weights and measures, including the debasing of money and the devaluing of currency. Right? If, if the farmer goes off to the marketplace and he sells some crops and someone has taken some silver coins, melted them down, and shoved a bunch of iron in the middle of it to devalue uh, the true weight of that, those silver coins, the farmer thinks he's getting 10 ounces of silver. He's not. He's getting five and five ounces of iron. Right? That's fraudulent dealing. That's false weights and measures. Also, you know, if, if the farmer himself has these scales that are rigged, so that it looks like he's selling 100 pounds of this or 50 pounds of that, and really it's more like 20 or 40. This is a matter that needs to be adjudicated by the king and those who labor underneath him. Removing landmarks. Imagine that one farmer looks at these stones that are in between his farm and a neighboring farmer's property, and he decides to take these stones and move them over so that now he has an extra acre or two. As he's defrauding his neighbor. Civil servant must act. Extortion, usury, bribery, taking or holding from our neighbor what belongs to him, right? Stealing oxen or finding oxen that we know belongs to that farmer over there. And we're going to pretend like, oh, we just don't know where they came from. They just wandered into our, we, we don't know. The civil servant is to adjudicate those matters, right? That's civil adjudication, not market manipulation, when one fails to do right in any of those ways, he should fear the king and his officials mentioned in verses 8 and 9. The king will be more blessed by the land if he is indeed righteous. And if the king is wise and just, the citizens of the land will become more greatly blessed in return. The magistrate, king or not, is to step in and intervene for one who deserves justice from his fellow man. This is interposition. Westminster Larger Catechism 129 makes it plain that part of a duty that a superior has to an inferior, which in this context is the duty that a king has to the oppressed poor and to the man working in his fields, is that when there is one who is doing evil, he is to discountenance, reprove, and chastise the citizens who are doing wrong. What can we take away from these things? Well, first, we should see our jobs, our labors in the home and in the marketplace for what they are. They are a blessing to the land. Uh, Ladies, let me ask you a question. It's, I think it's really easy for your husbands as they go off and they build stuff and they build contracts and documents and, and make deals and sell stuff. It's easy for them to look at their work and say, this is a blessing to the land. Not just to our family, but to our neighbors as well. But do you see your role as a wife and as a mother in the home in the same way? I think one of the greatest lies that's being sold today, and I think oftentimes websites that, that bear the name of Christ or proclaim that they're an alliance, part of an alliance for the sake of the gospel, uh, have also helped carry forward this lie that if you're going to be the, the full woman that you need to be, you need to be out there, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, boss bay out in the economy, right? You need to be running a business. You need to be, uh, you need to be a CEO. You need to uh, fulfill your dreams out in the world and get a job out there. I think it's a terrible, horrible lie. And I think society is now suffering the consequences for generations of women believing that lie. When you are raising godly children, not just good, polite kids, but truly godly children, and you send those arrows out into the world, that positively impacts society. 
I don't know if you've heard about this recently, time blindness. Gen Z is suffering from, and millennials too, are suffering from time blindness. You know what this is? It's a made-up disability uh, that's really just the inability to be an adult and manage time. Right? But people, Gen Zers, are literally saying, look, I want a job that, um, that makes room for my disability, my time blindness. I just set it, making me be, get to work on time at, at 9 a.m. I, I, I can't really navigate time well because of this disability that I have. That's a real thing happening. So, ladies, when you raise children that can become godly, Christ-honoring people who can just get to work on time, you'll bless society. So keep that in mind. I know your job is, is very hard. But keep in mind that you're not just a blessing to your family, but you're a blessing to the world around you as you labor. Secondly, we should understand the duties of our civil servants, and we should not hesitate to appeal to them in a godly manner for justice. Third, we should recognize that the deterioration of justice for businesses is a blight on society. It's not social justice. Number four, we should consider that God might be calling us to serve in the civil sphere. And yet we should also keep in mind that true change will only come when the hearts of people are regenerated by the Holy Spirit as the preaching of the gospel of Christ goes forth. And lastly, church, fear not. For there is a king of kings named Jesus Christ who is ruling from the right hand of God the Father. All men owe him allegiance, and one day all men will owe him answers. When we call for the magistrates and the kings of the earth to kiss the sun, as Psalm 2 would suggest they should do, it's for their own good. When we call them to swear their allegiance and to follow not man but Christ, it's for their good that they rule in a godly way so that they might not perish or have the wrath of the one true king kindled against them. What the two verses here today remind us to do is to fear the Lord Jesus and to ultimately seek him as our refuge. Officials and kings of the earth, they are infallible and imperfect, just like you and just like me. And they are meant to be the servants of the true God, even if they don't know it. And they are never to be seen as demigods themselves. And as Psalm 2 says, all those who seek and take refuge in Christ are blessed So even when it looks like all civil order and all civil justice is lost in the world, remember there is blessing for you in Christ Jesus. Let the hearer understand. Let's pray. Father, we offer up our thanks for the good doctrine of your scriptures. And we ask for your blessing to be upon our civil servants. May they be moved in their hearts by your spirit and guided by the law of Christ. May we be diligent to uphold justice and pray for those who govern in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray.